Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our podcast guest today is David Walenga, physician and director of the Food and Health Program at the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy in Minnesota. He's a graduate of Dartmouth College, has a master's degree from Princeton, and did his medical training at the University of Minnesota. He's written widely on issues of the environment and uh, particularly issues of food in the environment. So David, I'm very happy to have you here. I'm glad to be here. So the topic for this podcast is antibiotics. Why? Tell us, why in the world would people even think about antibiotics in the context of agriculture? Well, they might not think about it, but it's extremely important. As, as you know, Kelly, uh, we're really facing an epidemic of uh, antibiotic-resistant infections that are um, rendering many illnesses difficult or even impossible to treat. Now, thankfully, that's still few in number, but more and more uh, physicians are struggling to find antibiotics that will work. The reason the agriculture becomes important is Charles Darwin. 200 years ago, Darwin pointed out the phenomena of natural selection. And in terms of antibiotic resistance, it's based on the idea that if you use antibiotics, you're going to be selecting for bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. And it doesn't matter whether you're using them in the community or in the hospital or in agriculture. The same phenomena applies. Um, now, uh, the other thing that's important is the scale of the use in agriculture. Uh, we don't have great data because we don't collect antibiotic use data in this country as we should. But uh, the estimates, the best estimates we have are that as much as 70% of all the antibiotics used in the country for whatever use are actually put in animal livestock for chickens, beef cattle, and swine, not to treat their sicknesses, but rather to make them grow faster uh, on less feed and to help compensate for the fact that they're being raised in, in confined sheds that often put them uh, at risk for getting more infections. So let's let's uncouple some of the things you just mentioned. I was going to ask you the question, but you, by the way, the 70% figure is striking, that 70% of all antibiotics are going into farm animals is really remarkable. It, 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 it is remarkable, especially, you know, some of those are not human medicines, but we think about half of them are things that you would recognize as human drugs, penicillins, tetracyclines, and the like. So to get back to some of the reasons, <clears throat> you mentioned that the animals who are living in confined conditions um, need antibiotics. Why would that be the case? Well, w when an animal is living on pasture and out in the open and can move around a lot, uh, it, it, their immune system is relatively healthy and, and they've got natural ventilation. If they're being raised with 5,000 other animals in a confined barn, a couple of things are happening. Their immune system is stressed. It's just a normal stress response. Because of the crowding. Because of the crowding, because they can't move around uh, and, and exercise the way they normally would. They're also breathing air with a lot of antibiotics and bacteria in it, uh, and, and that tends to spread infections quite quickly. If there is, inf uh, it, it also creates an environment that selects for resistant bugs. Uh, and so if the animal's susceptible already, uh, uh, they're going to be more likely to get an infection in that setting. Are there figures available on what percentage of farm animals are raised under those confined conditions versus out on pasture? Oh, the vast majority. 
I mean, that this is really the dominant model for how we raise animals for, uh, for meat in the country. And you mentioned the issue of growth, that the antibiotics promote growth. How does, tell us about that. Well, this was kind of a phenomenon that was noticed uh, at least four, maybe five decades ago, that if you put a little antibiotic in the animal feed for most of the animal's life, it would put on a little more weight a little faster and you could get it to market faster. And that's when the practice sort of became routine. Now, there might still be a minimal benefit to growth from continuing to do it, um, but it's unnecessary. And even the benefit from growth promotion is probably not as great as it once was. But the, the bigger problem is, is just how it contributes to raising antibiotic-resistant bacteria that then can infect not only the workers on the farm, but get into the food supply and affect a lot more people that way. So you mentioned using a little bit of antibiotics. So these would be, I guess, what you could call subclinical doses, doses below the level that might be used to really treat an infection. Does that have implications for this resistance process you're talking about? Uh, yes, exactly. The, the conditions in which these antibiotics are used uh, uh, are ideal for breeding resistant bacteria in these farm environments. The doses are too low uh, to kill off the bacteria, so instead they get stronger uh, uh, from being exposed to it. It selects for resistance genes. The other thing is that the antibiotics are delivered and feed in water so that uh, the healthiest animals uh, th there's going to be a difference from animal to animal in how much antibiotic they're exposed to. Uh, and, and then there's just the concentration effect of having that many animals in one place. I remember hearing a presentation by a researcher from Johns Hopkins some years ago, so my information on this is probably dated. But the, the researcher was studying uh, disease-resistant uh, bacteria in uh, areas of the Delmarva Peninsula um, in uh, Maryland, where chickens are widely raised. And my recollection of the, that presentation was that there's a particular disease-resistant bacteria, and I, or antibiotic-resistant bacteria, I forget its name, but it, a, a very small number of people in the general population test positive for it, but a staggering percentage of the population in those areas tested positive for that. Is my recollection right? And then is it of concern beyond just the people who were nearby these facilities where the animals are raised? Uh, it's still a concern, and it's not just one bacteria, it's many. Um, I'll give you two, two or three examples. Um, Salmonella and Campylobacter are the two most common causes of food poisoning. Um, in both cases, much of the resistance that we now see in people that are getting Salmonella and Campylobacter infections, much of that resistance is due to the use on farms of antibiotics, uh, which then contaminates the food supply. More recently, uh, there have been concerns about MRSA, which you've probably heard of. It's a super staph infection that's also resistant to multiple drugs. And it turns out that uh, among farmers who are raising hogs using antibiotics, uh, and this is studies in Europe but, but also in the U.S., um, among farms raising hogs with antibiotics, those farmers and those hogs are much more likely to have MRSA than on farms not using antibiotics. So it's a big problem we're talking about here. So <clears throat> how do we solve it is the issue. You have 
uh, farmers, uh, it's part of their economic model of raising as many animals as they can at a low, as low a cost as they can, but it's creating some pretty important consequences for the environment, what the economists might call externalities. How do we solve the problem? Well, we know how not to solve the problem. Uh, education programs, while helpful, don't really do the trick. We've tried that. Um, also, we don't really have good tools for letting the market uh, um, uh, solve the problem for us. It, it won't because people undervalue effective antibiotics. It's kind of a common good problem. What we do know that works from Europe is a, a, a government-directed ban on these unnecessary antibiotic uses. And the reason it works is, first of all, that it levels the playing field for everybody. And so when Denmark, for example, got rid of all the antibiotic growth promoters and animal feed, uh, the, the World Health Organization evaluated the experience. What did they find? They found that there was a significant benefit to public health. There was uh, an over 50% drop in the total antibiotics used in those farms. And there was no impact on farmers' incomes, little or no impact on animal health or productivity. Amazing. So... I'll end with the obvious question, why would this happen in Europe and not in the U.S.? Well, that's a question I'm scratching my head over after looking at this issue for eight years. So I think, you know, we, we know what we need to do. We just haven't had the leadership to do it. Thank you, uh, David Walinga, for joining us, um, the director of the Food and Health Program at the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy in Minneapolis. Delighted to have you here. Thank you. Uh, I'd like, like to alert the listener to two other podcasts that we're uh, recording with David, one on high fructose corn syrup and the other on the concept of how the world can be overfed and undernourished at the same time. Uh, please feel free to visit the Rudd Center website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a variety of resources on food and food policy issues and also issues related to obesity, including a, a newsletter that you can receive at no cost by email and a list of the other excellent podcasts that we've recorded. Thank you.